Okay, Jesse, last week's crazy old time serial killer was definitely one for the ages. What's the story this week? Tensions between roommates explode into violence, leaving one young couple murdered. What ensues includes a tense trial, a prison break, and the destruction of far more lives than anyone could imagine. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about broken dreams, daring escapes, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoy the show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, which includes Spotify now. Yay. Subscribe and review on Apple Podcasts to help new people discover the show. Wow. Okay. I hope everyone had a wonderful Christmas. Wonderful. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. And we're gearing up for New Year's now. So I thought I would end the 2021 season with one of the most convoluted, crazy, and controversial cases that we've covered to give you all some food for thought at the end of the year. Oh, I'm a little scared. Well, I'm really excited to hear your thoughts on this. I know for a fact you haven't heard this case. So I can't wait to see what you think of it, Andy. Should we jump right in? Absolutely. On July 11th, 2000, a young, fun-loving professional woman named Sarah Pender attended a fish concert with her best friend who introduced her to a handsome former high school football star named Richard Hull. The two early 20-somethings hit it off right away. Both had experienced hardship, loss, and trauma in their life, but they had shouldered it with smiles that belied the pain and drugs that buried it. To that end, Richard, known as Rick to his friends, pulled out a baggie full of ecstasy and offered some to Sarah. Ooh. (laughs) Baggie of ecstasy at the fish concert. This is how they get started. The two rolled right through the night, listening to their favorite jam band. (laughs) Literally. Literally rolled through the night, and they vibed with each other. The party continued across the street at Rick's pal's house, and the pair continued to talk all night, fueled by drugs and an undeniable spark of connection. Both Rick and Sarah had had their share of one-night stands, but that night, they didn't have sex. They connected in a new and profound way. Sarah would later describe the night in a poem. One night I went to a fish concert, blown out of my mind. I was looking for a good time. What I got was a hot young man who turned my life around. Within weeks, the couple was living together. It seemed like something we all might dream of. A spark, an instant connection. The possibility of true love. Also, drugs. Also. Also, lots of drugs. But this dream would turn into a nightmare. Drugs, deception, and an eruption of violence that would leave two young people murdered horrifically in their home. And that is just the beginning. What comes after is a daring prison escape that ruins the lives of several involved. And one big question about the escapee, manipulative murderer or wrongfully convicted taking the law in their own hands? 
We'll find out today on the very last love murder of 2021. So let's start with Sarah Jo Pender. Sarah was born on May 29th, 1979, the youngest of two daughters born to Bonnie and Roland Pender in Greencastle, Indiana, where Roland worked at a conveyor belt company, which he would later leave to start his own successful business. Roland and Bonnie had very different approaches to parenting. Roland was strict, while Bonnie was more lax. She preferred to let kids be kids. And the conflicts eventually led to a divorce in 1984. When Sarah was only five, her mother left the family, and she and her sister were largely raised by their father and then later on his second wife. Bonnie said she left the children in Roland's care because he had a good job and could afford the mortgage while she drifted in California for a couple years. Bonnie eventually moved back to the area to get partial custody and did her best to be a stable presence in her daughter's life. Bonnie had a brief second marriage during which time Sarah later claimed that her stepfather had molested her beginning at age nine. It would take years for Sarah to tell her mother about the sexual abuse, and by then the couple was long divorced and no charges were ever filed. So the main source I used today was Girl Wanted the Chase for Sarah Pender by Steve Miller, but I also watched a snapped episode, Stranger in My Home, which is an ID show, and I took some things from Wikipedia and Murderpedia and, you know, some other online articles. This one was like a rabbit hole. So Snapped is the show and then Stranger in My Home is the episode? No. So Snapped is, she has an episode on Snapped. There's also an ID series called Stranger in My Home. Got it. uh, Which she also had an episode on. So there was two different shows. Wow. Okay. So Bonnie told author Steve Miller that older sister Jennifer initially told me that Jack, the stepfather, had tried it with her and didn't succeed. Sarah told me in 1999. She said that he had Sarah try on my negligees. To this day, I am not sure how far it went, but I know that for a long time, Sarah thought it was her fault. I think it did cause her great problems over the years. She was really confused about men. She was looking for someone to love her. Oh. Sarah also struggled with her weight, alleged favoritism of her sister Jennifer, and the strict nature of her father's parenting. At school and church where Sarah sang in the choir, she was considered smart, bubbly, and very popular. Throughout middle school and high school, Sarah was an honor student. She was a talented singer and an active part of her church youth group. Outwardly, it seemed like she was the perfect student and kid. Her fellow students adored her. She had tons of friends, and though some said she wasn't exactly a classic beauty, There was an attractive, warm, inviting quality to her personality that made her one of the more sought-after girls at school. Behind closed doors, though, Sarah was struggling with depression at one point when she was 15, requiring a 10-day hospitalization. Around that time is when she began to experiment with sex, drugs, and alcohol. When she was 16, Sarah stole her stepsister's car, and when it ran out of gas, she returned and then stole her stepmother's car, ran a light, and was struck by another driver. Oh, my God. Yeah, the accident landed her in a wheelchair for months as she recovered from a broken pelvis. Oh my God, I imagine that has to be the worst things to break. Ugh, yeah. You could never get comfortable. No. Still, many who felt that they knew Sarah didn't really know the side of her. Even in high school, Sarah was able to live a double life. High-performing popular student by day and reckless partier at night. Sarah graduated high school in 1997 and was accepted at Purdue University as a physics major. Whoa. Yeah, she's a smart cookie. The summer before college, it seemed as if Sarah's problems were behind her. She was working three jobs to help save money for school and was dating her high school sweetheart, a really nice guy named David, who seemed to keep her out of trouble. However, 
By her second semester, Sarah discovered the bar and party scene at the school and fell all in. She and her mother would later say that she probably would have benefited from a gap year. She kind of had wanted to take a year off between high school and college, but her dad had really wanted her to go straight to school. Yeah, traditional. More traditional. Yeah. Well, Bonnie was like, no, let her have a year off, you know, because she's a little bit, you know, more relaxed. Unfortunately, it didn't seem like Sarah was mature enough, even though she was smart, to handle the rigors of college. Okay. And she started failing out of her classes. So Sarah quit Purdue after one dismal year. She moved in with her boyfriend, David, for a little while, but the relationship soon failed because Sarah really liked to go out. She was very social, and David was more of a homebody. It was also, I think it sounds like, you know, your high school sweetheart situation doesn't always last, you know? It was one of those things where... It's a time and a place, you know? Yeah, there has to be some sort of statistics on how many last. Exactly. And I think that was a big part of it, too. She didn't realize until they were living together that they had grown apart. Sarah was by then working as an office admin and rising through the ranks at an Indianapolis construction firm, and she was doing quite well. She moved into her own apartment and made some vague plans to return to college someday. She was, like, saving money for it. There wasn't any immediate plans. But in the meantime, she began using drugs very regularly. She would later say that around this time, she was buying almost an eight ball of Coke a week. Whoa. Yeah, it's a lot of cocaine. It was during this period that she was also allegedly raped by a male friend while she was trying to sleep off a bender on his couch. And I only say allegedly because he was never convicted. Okay. Did he have any feedback on it? He did not comment for the book or as far as anything that I know. But in a couple of the shows, her mother and her sister talk about it. And it's also in the book as well. So despite the rape and the hard partying, Sarah still performed admirably at work and was a source of loyal support for her friends and family. People at the construction firm all respected Sarah, but did note that she has a wild side. She seemed to enjoy shocking people, once bringing a girl into her work, kissing her in front of her coworkers, and introducing her as her bitch. Oh my God. (laughs) Sarah would later say that it was a joke. It was her very straight best friend, like kind of putting them on. And a lot of people said that was kind of her personality. She liked to kind of shock and like play jokes like that. She also would often change in the parking lot, like fully like just standing outside her car, like take her shirt off and like change into a new shirt. And there was like an adjacent road. So people would like drive by honking at her and she was like, cool, whatever. Okay. Only about three months after the rape, Sarah went to a fish concert in July of 2000 and met a man who would shape her destiny, Richard Rick Hall. So Rick was born on November 4th, 1977, one of three kids raised by his single mother and grandmother. Rick was athletically gifted and excelled at almost all sports, playing baseball, basketball, track, and football. The latter was where he really shined. Rick was a huge guy. Well, in high school, I think only like when he was only a freshman, he reached his full adult size of 6'5", 300 pounds. Whoa. Yeah. He's a truck. His sister said that he had always been large. He was 95 pounds in kindergarten. Excuse me? Yeah, that's wild. Rick became a high school legend on the football field and was scouted for competitive scholarships at great schools like Indiana and Syracuse. Unfortunately, when Rick's beloved grandmother died, it threw him into a tailspin that he treated with drugs and alcohol. 
It got so bad that he would later report he only played one game sober his entire senior year. Uh, that's not safe. It's bad. He also said, though, that he was, like, better playing, well, intoxicated. He's like, that one game that I played sober, I just wasn't even as good. Yeah, because you, like, have no inhibition. I mean, I imagine you're just sacking people left and right then, huh? Yeah, but you're also not reliable. No. Or quick to think. Yeah, and this, in general, was a very poor idea because eventually Rick got a DUI, and when he did, his scholarship offers were rescinded. And he sunk into an even greater depression. Rick fell into a life of crime, mostly theft and drug dealing, as well as intermittent straight jobs like working as a bouncer. By the time he met Sarah, he already had a couple convictions under his belt for stealing cars. And there was one that was like a residential entry or something, like he went to somebody's house. Just stealing a car, is that grand theft or is that just normal theft? I don't know, actually. Is Grand Theft have to be at gunpoint? I I actually don't know that one. All I know is that he did have, I think it's still a felony conviction, is he had two felony convictions and then he had some misdemeanors. Like he had like the DUI and he had some other like drug-related incidents. But it was really the car theft and it seemed like he entered somebody's home with the intent to rob was the other one. According to Sarah's family, she did not know about his priors until they were already deeply in love. The couple moved into a house together on August 19th with two friends of Rick's, 24-year-old Andrew Cataldi and his 25-year-old girlfriend, Trisha Nordman. Andrew had had a troubled life that had resulted in him drifting around the country during most of his early adult years, selling drugs and working odd jobs. But his sister said that no matter how lost Andrew was, he always managed to call home and he was still like, you know, the apple of his mother's eye. He struggled to find his way in the world, but he was a good son and brother. So one day, Andrew ended up way too high to function at a Grateful Dead concert. I guess he was like kind of like half passed out on top of this trailer or this truck And Rick had been working security for the concert as a bouncer, and the higher-ups told him to take Andrew to be arrested for, like, drunk and disorderly. And instead, Rick took him somewhere and let him sober up and did not turn him into the cops. So after that, they became fast friends. Drew moved to Las Vegas, where he set up a successful meth-dealing corporation. Uh, (laughs) Not usually what I say after I say set up a successful blank. (laughs) And he eventually asked Rick to come out and work for him. Tabitha, Rick's little sister, would tell author Steve Miller that the two young men thought that they were living like the movie Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Oh my God. Not a good thing, guys. Yeah. That's not exactly uh, one you want to aspire to. No. So yeah, she said that they would get high on nitrous and drive around the desert selling drugs. (laughs) Seems very dangerous to drive on nitrous. dangerous. Wow. The fun ended in August of 1999 when police busted Andrew and he was incarcerated first at a local jail and then sent to a minimum security farm. Rick had been spared and hightailed it back to Indiana while Drew managed to meet a fellow inmate named Trisha Nordman who was in jail for writing bad checks in Reno. On August 4th, 2000, Drew and Trisha were part of a low-security corrections team that was assisting the Nevada Division of Forestry amid an outbreak of wildfires by handling hoses, carrying water, and picking up trash. 
Even though Andrew only had three months left on his sentence, he and Trisha decided to seize upon the opportunity to escape by walking from the site and jumping on a bus. Stop it. They just strolled away. I guess they were also living in like a halfway house at this point. So they were almost free. They were essentially free. All they had to do was do these, you know. That's wild. So wild, the couple eventually made their way to Indiana where Rick took them in and the young men planned to build a drug enterprise. Clearly no one is learning any lessons here. Zero lessons. That's what I was just going to tell you. I'm having a hard time finding a protagonist in this story. That was actually one of the complaints about the book because I always read the reviews on Amazon and Goodreads before I select a true crime book and... A lot of the reviews were like, I had a very hard time finding somebody to root for, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It was something that they had wanted to do together for some time, the drug business, that is. About the living situation, Sarah said the following. Drew and Richard were partners in the drug business that they had established quite some time before I even met Rick. The situation was that Drew and Rick were supposed to be equal partners and that I provided a home, a legitimate job, and all of the cover, quote unquote, and Trisha would just be Drew's girlfriend. So Sarah is the only one with a real job in this situation. And it's her name on the lease over here. Ugh, God. Everyone was pleased with this arrangement and Drew and Rick split the business by having Rick handle steroids and ecstasy while Drew sold meth and weed. As expected, with this amount of available drugs, cash coming and going, and in general, four adults, very young adults, living in a small two-bedroom with one bathroom, tensions ran high. Uh, Yeah. Sarah claimed that Drew and Rick were constantly fighting, and so were Trisha and Drew. She even alleged that Drew was physically abusive with Trisha. Sarah was fed up with the situation by the fall. She couldn't tolerate the never-ending conflicts, and she was angry with both Drew and Rick for breaking their promise to not sell drugs out of the house. A neighbor would later say that the fighting was obvious to the whole neighborhood and that Rick attempted to illegally purchase a firearm from her son at one point. Rick did indeed want a gun, but of course couldn't get one legally because he was an ex-con. He enlisted Sarah to buy one for him. Now, I read and heard a few different reasons why Rick wanted the gun, and Sarah bought it for him. So they ranged from pretty innocent. It was a week before Rick's birthday. He liked hunting and target shooting, so she got him the shotgun as a gift. But Rick would also say that he was interested in protection. So like the gun being used as protection because they were dealing drugs out of the home that their girlfriends lived in. Okay. Lastly, it was also reported that the man who had raped Sarah was harassing her and that basically Rick wanted to protect her slash was considering taking revenge by shooting the guy's dick off. Regardless of its intended use, the gun was only used in one incident, and it wasn't for any of these reasons. On the early morning of Tuesday, October 24th, 2000, Sarah bought Rick a $350 Mossberg shotgun, which some call a turkey gun, as well as a box of deer slugs, filling out all of the necessary paperwork in her name. From there, Sarah went to work, and Rick supposedly went to the country near his hometown in Noblesville to, quote, shoot some stuff. Later that night, the couple went out to dinner with Sarah's dad, Roland, and his wife. Rick had been using drugs that day, which I have to say was a pretty regular occurrence. So I'm sure he was really screwed up, but not as screwed up as somebody who doesn't regularly take drugs. Exactly. 
So he had taken some meth in the morning and in the afternoon. And then after dinner, he had smoked a bowl of marijuana and took a hit of acid. Ooh. Yeah. So Sarah and Rick arrived home at 11 p.m. where Drew and Trisha were already partying. The foursome smoked some pot and hung out for a little while while clients dropped by to pick up drugs. As the evening wore on, Rick and Drew began to argue and the fighting intensified. Everything from here on out is completely debatable as the two surviving people changed their stories and have offered several explanations for the evening's tragic events. Okay, so one theory about why they were all fighting was that Rick's little sister, Tabitha, at the time still a high school senior, owed Drew $150 for some weed she had bought. And Drew was apparently raging about this and screaming at Rick to say, like, your your sister's got to pay up. I don't care if she's your sister. You know, she owes me money. Yep, yep. Another reason Sarah suggested that there was a fight was that Rick had gotten Drew a cell phone and Drew was like running up minutes on it and basically running up a huge bill. Okay. In any case, Sarah claimed that around 2 a.m., the fighting got to be too much for her. So she decided to walk a few blocks down to a convenience store and buy some cigarettes. She ended up walking around the neighborhood, smoking for a little to cool down. And then she returned to the house roughly an hour later. When she returned, she found the front door locked and she didn't have her key. So she went around through the back where she discovered a trail of blood coming out of the back door. When she stepped inside the house, she was horrified to discover the dead bodies of Drew and Trisha, both shot to death. Drew had suffered one shot to the chest while Trisha had been hit in the head and the chest, her face essentially blown off. Whoa. Sarah would later say that she decided to help Rick cover up the murders because she was scared. She said, Drew's body is on the floor and Trisha's on the couch and Rick is standing over them. And I thought, son of a bitch, what am I going to do? I can't run because he'll find me and kill me. So what I need to do is stick around and be loyal. Never in my wildest dream did I think that I was at fault. I knew that this was my gun in my house. But this is what I have to do because I'm his loyal girlfriend and this is just what happens in the drug game. Whoa. No. Not okay. Definitely not okay. So Sarah and Rick wrapped the bodies in blankets and loaded them into a truck that Rick had borrowed from a friend the night before. They drove five blocks over to a local Teamsters union and dumped Trisha and Drew in the dumpster like actual garbage. Oh my God. Then they went home to try to clean up the bloody crime scene. Sarah went to work as usual, punching in at 8.09 a.m. on Wednesday, October 25th. So casual, just like nothing happened. I can't even imagine. And her coworkers said that she seemed fresh as a daisy. In fact, she was wearing a new outfit. And everyone said that she seemed like she was in a perfectly good mood. Wow, that's so scary. That is some serious like compartmentalization right there. Yeah. Meanwhile, Rick rented a steam cleaner and he had to actually go to a neighbor's to borrow a converter because the steam cleaner needed a like three pronger and their house only had two prong outlets. Got it. So that'll come back to bite him later. When he couldn't get all of the blood off of the carpet, Rick moved the couch to the middle of the room to try to cover it up. And it was very oddly placed. 
Tabitha stopped by to pay Drew the money that she owed him and was confused by the living room setup and the fact that Rick told her that Drew and Trisha had taken off despite all of their things being in their room. Hmm. Some of Drew's customers were also getting concerned when Rick began answering their calls. So he was answering Drew's cell phone. Yep. Yeah. And he also said the same thing. He said that they had taken off. They went back to Las Vegas, but he still had Drew's drug stash. Yeah. Yeah, no one's leaving and not taking their drugs with them. No. Tabitha left after Sarah got home from work, noting that Sarah seemed nervous and didn't want to stay in the house. She said that she wanted to get a motel. At about the same time Tabitha was leaving, only a third of a mile away, a man named Steven Stultz was finishing his workday as the director of pensions at the Teamsters Hall. As his last duty of the day, Steven tossed some trash in the dumpster and noticed what looked like a man resting inside. He initially thought it was a homeless person potentially taking a nap and shouted, hey, buddy, you okay? When he didn't get a response, he looked closer and saw that there were three legs total that he could see. Ooh, not a sight that you want to see ever. The horror dawned upon him and he immediately called the police. Detective Ken Martinez hit the scene and said that the bodies were truly atrocious. They had been shot at close range. Yeah. With deer slugs by a shotgun. So it was just a mess and there was a ton of blood. The bodies were taken to the morgue, but because they had no IDs on them and for some reason they said that they ran their prints, but nothing came up. It might've been because Trisha had some sort of like oily substance on her fingers and there was some issue in cataloging Drew's as well. So they didn't get any identification off the fingerprints. Well, my mom just told me that hand sanitizer can burn your prints to make them different. So really? Yeah. She just had to get reprinted for coming out to California for nursing because her prints didn't match up. That is wild. People are going to get away with so many more crimes in the post-COVID era. Uh Uh-huh. Well, only if they use a lot of hand sanitizer. Right now, every criminal. (laughs) Squirt, 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 all day. (laughs) They have hand sanitizer as a new marketing team. Yeah. (laughs) Also, the added bonus rips your prints away. So they have to figure out who these people are, obviously. The only clue was that Andrew had some bags of meth in his pocket, which was tied up in the way that drug dealers tie up drugs to be sold. So they had a feeling, obviously, they were involved in the drug business. They also had some tattoos. Trisha and Andrew both had tattoos. Drew's were very specific. He had a Grateful Dead tattoo on his thigh above the name Trisha. He also had a skull engulfed by a spider web on his left shoulder, as well as a 69 and a Harley Davidson eagle on his other shoulder. Wow, that is an assortment. That is indeed an assortment. So they put the pictures of the tattoos on Thursday's 11 a.m. local news broadcast. And by 1 p.m., they already had several calls identifying Drew. A neighbor called to give police Drew and Trisha's address by 1.20 p.m. And within 30 minutes, the landlord let the police in and gave them the names of Sarah Pender and Rick Hull. They got a search warrant by 3 p.m. and found obvious signs of the murders. There was blood on the carpet as well as walls and ceiling. And they found Rick's ID in the home that had his mother's address on it. So they drove over to Noblesville and they actually pulled in at the same time that Rick and Sarah were giving Tabitha a ride. So they managed to apprehend them there. 
The two were separated and interrogated, and right away, Sarah was ready to throw Rick under the bus. So she told them almost exactly the same story that I told you. The fighting, she left, she came back, she found the dead bodies, she panicked, and she helped him dispose of the bodies. She also volunteered to hand over some evidence. So she took them to a cheap motel where the couple had been staying, and she handed over a pair of Rick's pants that contained both Trisha and Drew's DNA, as well as the murder weapon, the shotgun. Meanwhile, Rick first tried to tell the police that Trisha and Drew had gone to a party and never come home. So the cops are like, cool, 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 cool. Then why is there blood all over your house and your pants? So Rick finally Uh. said that he and Drew had gotten into a fight and Drew had tried to run to Rick's room and get the newly acquired shotgun, that there was a struggle for the gun. Well, Drew said that he was going to kill Rick's entire fucking family. Okay. So he basically got that far and he was like, I should probably get an attorney at this point. But he like all but said he shot them in self-defense. Okay. Rick was arrested for double homicide and the interview was over. So Rick is locked up, but they actually let Sarah go to begin with. She had been super cooperative and they were thinking that they would likely work out some sort of deal with her to get her to testify against Rick, which we've seen a million times. I was just going to say, yeah. But that all changed when they pulled the sales records and the security camera footage of Sarah buying the shotgun at Walmart the very same day as the murders. Oh my God. So this was clear accessory to murder. Plus, having her bought that gun on the day of the murders looks pretty premeditated. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. So they arrested Sarah at this time. Sarah's dad, Roland, hired a very well-respected defense attorney to represent her. And everyone agreed that the best move would be to try to get Sarah to officially roll on Rick, secure some sort of deal, testify against him, and have a shorter sentence. During the nearly two years before either Sarah or Rick saw the inside of a courtroom, they both remained in jail. Sarah was a prolific letter writer during this time, sending notes of support, love, and sexual content to Richard Hull, who had changed his story several times by now. He had said that Sarah wasn't home, like her story, and that he had shot the couple. He had said that Sarah was home and had told him to kill the couple. And he had also said at one point that Sarah had actually been the one to pull the trigger and he was covering for her because he loved her. It should be noted that he told this last version with Sarah doing it while taking a lie detector test three times and it was shown truthful. Oh, no. Yeah. So Sarah herself would not consent to a polygraph regardless and probably because polygraphs aren't admissible at trial and because Rick already had a prior record. The deputy prosecutor, Larry Sells, found Sarah's version the most likely based on the evidence. So they decided to stick with that account, which also Rick had said at one point, also he had agreed that that happened that way, you know? Oh my God, all over the place. So Sarah is still writing letters to Rick during this period. And these letters are oscillating between loving and kind. Like she's saying, if you end up going to jail for a really long time and I get out, I'm going to stay with you and I'll come visit and I will make sure you're taken care of. 
And she's telling him how much she loves him. And she's like writing to them on the anniversary of the day they met and saying, I I just want this simple life with you. I just want to have kids in a small house. And maybe, you know, we can achieve that together somehow. And then like the next letter would be like angry and spiteful because she heard that he might be changing his story or blaming her. So in one letter she wrote... Do you think your sin will go unpunished? Do you think trying to condemn an innocent person to a life sentence will never come back to haunt you? So it's really interesting, these letters, because it does kind of seem like she's forcing him to stick to the story. And how did they get their hands on these letters? It was a jail bust. So we're about to get into that. Got it. Also, these were all delivered through a third party. So they were not allowed to have contact with one another. I figured. Yes. So basically, Sarah was sending these letters to somebody on the outside, and that person was sending the letters to Rick. Got it. Okay. But Rick wasn't the only one that she was writing love letters to. Sarah had met a man named Floyd Pennington at a Catholic mass service at the county jail only a few weeks after she was arrested. Pennington was a lifetime criminal who was not only a sex offender, but also awaiting trial on a robbery charge. Not a good, not a good. No, real prince over here, yeah. She's got a type, huh? Yeah. She likes those bad boys. Over the summer, Sarah and Pennington exchanged eight long letters where they spoke about long-term romance and sexual favors. In fact, Floyd and Sarah even plotted how to end up in the hospital together by both pretending to be sick. What? Yeah, they had this whole, like, he pretended like his kidneys were failing, and I forget what she... She pretended, but they both acted sick and got to go to the hospital that it was associated with the jail. So strange. They just wanted a rendezvous. Letters to both Rick and Floyd Pennington included pledges of love and some sexual content. One detective was horrified to discover what Sarah called a scratch and sniff letter. She had put her own bodily fluids on the page for her suitor's enjoyment. Hmm. Scratch and sniff. Uh, not as good as that scratch and sniff peppermint vodka I made you drink at the holidays. I still can't believe that that's real. Guys, Smirnoff has like a peppermint flavored vodka and the bottle is scratch and sniff and it's amazing. So Sarah also bragged in these letters about how stupid the cops were, how stupid the prosecutor was, and even how dumb her own attorney was. She was feeling pretty confident that she'd be out fairly quick as her attorney was working on a deal for her. And indeed he was. By July 2001, a deal for Sarah to plead to lesser offenses for potentially two to eight years was about to be finalized. Unfortunately for Sarah, only days before the deal was done, a search warrant was executed for Sarah and Rick's respective cells, turning up 51 pieces of correspondence from Sarah to Rick and five from Rick to Sarah. In the letter, Sarah asserted to Rick that they would both be able to walk even though they had killed two people if they kept their mouths shut, that Drew and Trisha were low lives who deserved to die, And like I said before, that everyone involved legally was too stupid to actually put them away. Her attorney, Robert Hammerly, promptly withdrew from the case. He later said to author Steve Miller, in effect, the letters to Hull not only incriminated herself, but she was taking the position that if they both said nothing, that they would both end up walking free. No. No. Her letters contradicted the idea that she was peripherally involved, as we had been making a case for with the prosecutor's office. 
Although they could have convicted her, they clearly wanted testimony against the one responsible for it. There was even a sinister quality to these letters from her. There would be no deal, he knew. These letters would send her down. He went to the jail to tell Sarah before breaking the news to her parents. Neither task would be easy, but at least Sarah would realize what she had done. Her parents had no idea how this could fall apart. She was mere days away from a sentence that could have had her on the street in two years. With time served, Sarah could have been celebrating Christmas in 2003 as a free woman. She has literally snatched defeat from the jaws of victory, Hammerly told her father, Roland Pender. She has left me in an untenable position. The dam has burst and it is going to roll over her and all because of what she has done with these letters. Yikes. It's crazy how much fate those had. Big. I mean, huge. It changed her life by a lot, but also, as you'll see, several other people's lives because of that. And it's also crazy. I mean, listen to your attorneys. The first thing they'll tell you is don't talk to other prisoners. Don't write to other prisoners. Don't say anything that can be used against you. Yeah, it's not. Not smart. And that was only the beginning of her jailhouse correspondence getting Sarah in trouble. Her other boyfriend, Floyd Pennington, went to the investigator on Sarah's case and told him that he had information about the murders. Uh, what? Mm-hmm. Floyd claimed that while they had their hospital rendezvous, even though they were both handcuffed to beds and they were something in the neighborhood of 20, 25 feet apart, they had been left alone for three hours. Wow. Yep. In which time they had a conversation and Sarah had told him that she was more involved in the drug business than people knew. And when Trisha <sighs> and Drew had ripped her and Rick off, she coerced Rick into killing the other two, even buying him the shotgun. I mean, don't you think it's kind of weird that like the moment she left to go to the convenience store is when the murder happened? I would say it's muy convenient. Muy conveniente. <laughs> it does seem very convenient that she left and just showed back up and it was like, oh my God, like, oh what my happened? God. Yeah, exactly. Floyd Pennington later testified at Sarah's trial to this effect. Speaking of Sarah's trial, it kicked off before Rick's on Monday, July 22nd, 2002. Deputy Prosecutor Larry Sell's angle in his opening statement was that Sarah might not have actually pulled the trigger that killed two people, but she was the one who urged Rick Hall to, as well as, you know, buying the gun, helping dispose of the bodies, which made her just as culpable in the eyes of the law. The big evidence against Sarah was threefold. Number one, the Walmart records that prove Sarah was the one who bought the murder weapon on the day of the murders. Two, the testimony of Floyd Pennington. And three, the letters to Rick Hull in general, but one bombshell one that had later been provided by Rick's attorney that read, I wish I could go back and change the events of that night. Drew was so mean that night, I just snapped. I didn't mean to kill them. It must have been the acid. The acid? The acid. I don't know if that'll stand up in court. When you said that you would try and take the blame, I knew then that you loved me deeply. At first, I thought you would tell, but you stuck to your promise. As time goes on, I hope and pray that you beat this. The letter was analyzed for the prosecution by a state forensics handwriting analyst who concluded that Sarah was the author of the letter. An examination of the letter also found fingerprints belonging to Steve Logan, who was an inmate who shared a cell in the county jail with Hall. And Hall's fingerprints were on it as well. 
Yikes. But Sarah's prints weren't on it. What? Yeah, Sarah's prints weren't on it, but the forensics expert did say that it was consistent with her handwriting. Okay. But how would her fingerprints not be on it? Like she wrote it with a glove? I don't know. Maybe. I think that's the only way. The defense never produced its own analysis of the letter. Sarah maintained that the letter was not written by her and it was a forgery. Hall's sister Tabitha came in and also gave a handwriting sample. It was not her. The letter was a crucial part of the evidence against Sarah. In closing statements, prosecutor Sells referred to Sarah as the female Charles Manson. Yikes, that's not good. Not good. And it's very catchy. As you can imagine, the media took that and ran with it. And he meant it insofar as, yeah, you know, Charles Manson didn't kill all those people, but it was at his request that they did. His orders. His orders. And that's exactly what prosecutor sells said that Sarah did. Yep. Sarah's defense attorney stuck to her story, refuted Pennington's testimony, and alleged that the letter was a forgery. Despite his best efforts, it seemed the jury didn't buy it, and Sarah was found guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. Whoa. Whoa, indeed. During sentencing, Andrew Cataldi's sister spoke about how the brutal murder had devastated their family and how she prayed that... Sarah would get life without the possibility of parole. Well, the judge didn't do an LWOP, but it was pretty darn close. Sarah got 55 years for each murder for a combined 110 years behind bars. Oh my God. This wasn't a spontaneous event, the judge stated. This was a plan and she was with Richard Hull every step of the way. Richard. Richard. Old dicky. Also, there was another witness, a neighbor of theirs, who saw both of them loading the bodies into the truck. I mean, the neighbor didn't know their bodies. They just were like, why in the middle of the night are these people putting something in a truck, you know? Yeah, no, it's it's like the same. It's like the body in the rug situation. If you're a normal person, which I guess none of us are because we'd immediately assume it was bodies. <laughs> but if you're a normal person, you wouldn't think that somebody was loading a body into a truck. Yeah, if you're not <laughs> a middle-aged true crime listener. <laughs> or any true crime listener of any ages. Female, particularly. <laughs> Mostly female, though. Gotta say. Drinking, drinking their white wine, looking through their window. <laughs> I feel like you just described me. I feel seen. <laughs> Same. In January of 2003, with the writing on the wall, Rick Hall pleaded guilty and was given 75 years behind bars. Meanwhile, Sarah was shell-shocked about her conviction and was doing everything in her power to garner an appeal and a new trial. She was steadfast in her denial that she had spoken to Pennington at all about the murders, nor that she had written the letter to Rick that was used to nail her to the wall. And it turned out that maybe she wasn't lying. Because in June of 2003, Rick filed a shocking affidavit on Sarah's behalf that stated not only was he the one who pulled the trigger, that he had forged the letter from her in order to get a better plea deal. Stop it. So it was a forgery. But the, he did her handwriting well? So it was his cellmate, Steve Logan, was a guy who was kind of on the smaller side. And I think bad things were happening to him in prison. And so in exchange for protection from 6'5", 300-pound Rick Hull... He forged Sarah's handwriting. Wow. That's like talent though. Yes. Like mm -hmm. to have a 
to have like a handwriting analysis done and have it be hers. Yeah, that is some serious talent. I mean, I guess you had a lot of time though to practice too. Of course, but still that's like not easy. Here's the crazy thing. Even with that affidavit, she did not get a new trial. Huh. Which is kind of weird to me because that's a huge piece of evidence, you know? Yep. Yep. And I think that the jury even said that they returned a guilty verdict based on that piece of evidence, you know? Wow. So this backfired for Rick completely. So Sarah didn't get any benefit because she did not get a new trial. And Rick got 15 years added to his sentence for perjury for the original, you know, forging of the document. Huh. So Sarah did well in prison and by all surface accounts seemed like an ideal inmate. She got her associate's degree and then her bachelor's. Sarah also participated in a service dog training program. She was known as being intelligent and was extremely popular among the other inmates, both for friendship and more. Sarah had a string of romantic relationships with other female inmates while she was incarcerated, including one with a woman in her early 40s named Jamie Long, who later referred to Sarah as her wife. Despite the fact that Jamie actually had a husband on the outside. Even as Jamie was released, she was devoted to Sarah. The two women shared many visits, phone calls, and letters that bordered on passionate. Beyond having the loyalty of her friends and lady lovers, Sarah also ended up getting a corrupt guard named Scott Spittler in her pocket. Uh Uh-oh. Scott had been hired by the Indiana Department of Corrections in May of 2003 after coming off a year of disability. He was a squat, balding man in his early 40s who had been married to his wife, Rhonda, for nine years. Together, they had a collective seven children, though many were out of the house at this point. The marriage had been plagued by the start with Rhonda catching Scott cheating on her only two weeks after the wedding. Oh my God. Ugh. She later said that when Scott got the job at the prison, he began to act like a jerk and she soon suspected that he was cheating again. Sarah and Scott Spittler did indeed have sex at least once or twice. But it did seem like in the media that there was this narrative of Sarah being this wild seductress who preyed upon and manipulated a hapless stooge guard. (laughs) And that was not the case. Okay. Yeah. First of all, just given that he's a guard and she's an inmate, there's an abuse of power right there. Yep. Secondly, their relationship was characterized by Sarah and others who knew about the relationship is more like business partners. Spittler would smuggle in contraband using novelty Coke cans. So they basically had like a false top or bottom. Yep. And he would put like pills and cell phones and stuff in the fake Coke cans, put them in his lunch. Okay. And then he would give the contraband to Sarah. Sarah would sell it for him and they would split the proceeds. That's a whole operation. Whole operation. Sarah did have sex with him, but she had another girlfriend at this point for like a year, I think. The girlfriend said that it was more to make sure that he wouldn't rat her out because then she would have something on him as well. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So she did it to control the situation rather than some sort of lusty affair, you know? Of course. Yeah. And she did it to begin to test just how far he would go. The girlfriend who was named Kimberly Stahl said, we owned him and he fell into a world of dirty cops. And once that happens, everyone knows that they can get something from them. For Sarah, it all started with pills, not with sex. Spittler was money hungry. And when we saw that he could bring in whatever we really wanted, it really started. He was bringing in his wife's Vicodin and Xanax. 
Benadryl is the hottest pill, and he was bringing us that too. Cell phones as well. Sarah said that she had known that Spittler was already bringing in pills and he had had sex with other inmates. So he was the perfect target. Oh, God. And it wasn't just money and sex that Sarah craved. What she really craved was freedom. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) When Sarah's final appeal was rejected in 2006, she began to plot her escape from prison, seeking Scott's assistance, as well as the help of her loyal friends, both in and out of the Rockville women's prison. And you know what, lovers? This bitch pulled it off. On Monday, August 4th, 2008, at 2.30 p.m. in the afternoon, Sarah was in the recreation room as per her usual schedule. She soon slipped away into the adjacent gym. She walked then through a set of unlocked steel doors and down a narrow 30-foot-long hallway. From there, she stripped off her baggy jail scrubs to reveal civilian clothes of jeans and a plain white T-shirt that Scott had brought her. Oh, my God. This is a whole, like, Ocean's Eleven escape here. Sarah discarded her jail clothes in an open ceiling tile at the end of the hall. She then walked down a hundred-foot walkway between an administrative building and an inner security fence, undetectable to any security cameras. Sarah walked by a loading area for vendors and then slipped through an unmanned security gate. She knew that the gate was going to be unmanned because Scott Spittler had told her so. She then crept through the unlocked rear passenger door of a prison transport van that Scott was currently pumping gas into. Okay. I mean, the timing of all of this. But they've had nothing but time to plan for this. Exactly. When she got into the van, she changed into a prison guard uniform that Scott had provided for her. The idea was that he was going to drop her off at a prison visitor's parking lot. And so he didn't want her to attract attention. Okay. The next part, leaving the prison, was the greatest challenge. Sarah lay on the floor of the van under the seats while Scott pulled up to the gatehouse. As per prison policy, Scott stopped the van, got out, and approached the guard. Scott then walked into the guardhouse to log the gallons of fuel that he had just pumped. Scott believed, based on experience, that if he did that, if he came all the way in, made a conversation, logged the fuel, that the guard would not come out and look inside as was proper procedure. Okay. And he was right. So Scott got back into the van and drove Sarah through the gate straight to freedom. In the visitor's parking lot, a rusted 1993 maroon Oldsmobile sat idling. Inside was Jamie Long, Sarah's old cellmate and prison wife. Sarah tumbled into the back seat and changed once more into clothes that Jamie had brought for her while Scott sped away. For his part in the escape, Sarah had promised him $15,000. It was a bright, beautiful day and Sarah breathed in her new life in between swigs of a pint-sized bottle of vodka Jamie had brought to toast their victory. Oh my God. Wow. That's a really good friend. (laughs) Brought you a change of clothes. I'm breaking you out of prison. Also, here's some vodka. Oh, my God. I cannot. Sarah was discovered missing at 4 p.m. and with a nice little head start. And some inmates immediately ratted out Scott. They were, you know, in cahoots and the inmates knew that. Within 12 hours of the escape, Scott Spittler confessed. 
After he confessed, news of the escape hit the news, causing Rhonda Spittler to file for divorce within the week. And Andrew's family to become shocked that the prison hadn't bothered to contact the family members of the victim. That is so effed up. If somebody double murdered my family member and their partner and then escaped prison, I would certainly like to know about it. Yeah, no, that's so scary. Sarah called her mother with a burner phone, told her mother to tell her dad that she was doing okay. And then she even called Rick Hull, who was in prison with his own contraband cell phone to share the news of her escape. He said that like by the time she called him, she seemed like she was already high. And he's like, you're going to get caught and you're going to take everybody down with you. Right now, they're throwing your friends in solitary, trying to squeeze them for information. The guard already went down. Like, who's next, Sarah? You know, this is a disaster. Scott Spittler had pretty much immediately snitched on Jamie Long. So Sarah had to immediately go into hiding with a network of ex-cons that she had done time with. So first of all, I guess that Jamie's husband had been working on like a pretty vacant house. So they had stashed her there first. And then a network of her friends who had already gotten out kind of like moved her around to family members and that sort of thing. Cool. 36-year-old U.S. Marshal Ryan Harmon was assigned to hunt Sarah down. And it would be no easy feat as Sarah would eventually be put on the U.S. Marshal's top 15 most wanted list. Oh, my God. Uh Uh-huh. She ended up being the most wanted woman in America at this time by a large margin. I mean, she's the female Charlie Manson. You know, that's how they're pitching her. That's 100%. And I mean, also, you're hearing convicted double murderer on the loose, the female Charles Manson. Beware. So immediately, the U.S. Marshal Harmon went to Jamie Long's home, which she shared with her husband of 20 years, Vietnam vet and handyman Larry and their son. Harmon kind of cozied up to Larry. You know, he was like, I really respect your service to the country. I hope you can respect me as law enforcement. Let's have an honest dialogue here, Larry. Like, your wife's in trouble. She'll be less in trouble if she comes clean now. So Larry convinced Jamie to eventually come clean. And she did admit her part in the escape plan as well as the drug ring. She handed over a box of money orders and told Harmon that when the drugs were sold in prison, the money would come from the outside to her, and then she would send a cut to Scott and keep the rest for Sarah for her escape. Okay. Now, Sarah was supposed to get all of this money, which was like, I think around $1,700. Instead, she only had access to $200. So that was all Jamie gave her when she escaped, and she didn't have time to give her the rest before the marshals came knocking on her door. Okay. Sarah was now on the run with far less loot than she had imagined and two accomplices already caught. For her role, Jamie Long was sentenced to seven years in prison. Oh my God. Which was the maximum. I think that she could have been sentenced to two to seven years and they really threw the book at her. Okay. Scott's attorney really played up the whole female Charles Manson angle and claimed that Scott had been manipulated by a seductive mastermind. Uh And he eventually pleaded guilty to aiding escape, garnering himself seven to eight years. I read somewhere it was seven. I also saw on one of the shows that it was eight. So somewhere between seven and eight years. Okay. Sarah used what little money she had scraped together to get herself a cheap motel room where she cut and dyed her hair. Desperate for money and running out of people willing to house her now that she was all over the news and, you know, people are going to jail for her. 
Sarah turned to a former inmate friend named Thea Fisher, who worked as a bartender at a strip club and occasionally dabbled in sex work. Thea said that she knew a wealthy man who would pay for two women to have a threesome with him. Oh, my God. Uh Guys, come on. Come on. Well, wait till you hear how this ends up. Out of options, Sarah agreed and was pleasantly surprised to find herself attracted when she met 53-year-old Tom Welch. Thea introduced Sarah to Tom as Ashley Thompson, a woman on the run from her abusive cop ex-husband. Oh, my God. Kind of accurate. Yeah. She's on the run. (laughs) She's definitely on the run and something to do with the cop, kind of. Yeah. And she does have, you know, kind of a terrible ex, so... (laughs) Oh, my God. This is They say the best lies are grounded in reality. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tom owned a lucrative trucking company and had semi-retired six years earlier at 47, though he still had an overseeing hand in the operation. He had long been married to a high-powered director of market development for American Express. Her position meant plenty of high-class corporate travel and a huge paycheck. Since his wife, Marilyn, was often traveling for work and there was only so much golf a semi-retired entrepreneur can play, Tom had developed some dangerous and addictive pastimes. Tom also suffered from a condition that was not muscular dystrophy, but he compared it to muscular dystrophy. And the condition had forced him to undergo several life-saving surgeries in his 30s, including open heart. And after that, he said that he had a vigor for life that transcended the moral code. Oh, God. Uh Uh-huh. He wanted to gamble. He wanted to have sex with beautiful women. So he said basically after that, he just did whatever he wanted. Okay. All right, sir. (laughs) All right. A near-death experience does not allow you to be a fucking dick. So the threesome went well enough that Sarah wondered later, quote, why is this guy paying for pussy? When Sarah went to leave to check into her own room, Tom offered to let her stay in the one that he had booked, saying that he would go home, which was a 15-minute drive away. So he ended up booking this room for Sarah, I think, for the better part of the next week. And he would return every day so that they could have marathon, mind-blowing sex sessions. (laughs) She's got him wrapped around her finger. So Thea did eventually tell Tom that Ashley was actually Sarah Pender, an escaped convict. (laughs) Casual. Casual. But he initially did not believe her, nor did he really care. He didn't want to believe her. Yeah. When he finally saw a photo of Sarah on the news... There was no longer any denying it, and his mind was kind of blown, but it did not change his feelings. (laughs) From Girl Wanted, he said, I saw that one picture, and I knew it was true. It was just a word to me, fugitive. I was hooked after the first day. It was like eating Lay's potato chips. You can't have just one. So he went on to say, when it was on the news, she said it was all bullshit talk. I wasn't at that murder, Sarah had told him. Rick killed them. They were in a drug partnership. I came to the house and he had killed them and he told me to get rid of them or he was going to kill me. I was 20 and I was stupid, which was totally fine with Welch. Sarah had entranced him. I trusted her because everything I could see and hear, well, that wasn't the person that I knew. For the rest of the week, Welch commuted to his lover in the dumpy motel room he paid for. He bought her some clothes. He brought her food. 
As time went by, we were getting to know each other and I was really attracted to this guy, Sarah said. He's smart. He runs a trucking logistics company. He was married, but he was saying, what do I have to do to get you into my life? So Tom and Sarah began a full-fledged relationship. They went out to restaurants. They ended up taking weekend trips to casinos where he was a high roller so they could have whatever they wanted. They were generally living the high life. And it's crazy. Sarah didn't seem to be even trying to hide at this point. I mean, she had cut and dyed her hair a different color. But other than that, she's just like out there living her life, you know? Good for her. (laughs) Good for her. Good for her. Good for you. Uh, Yeah. I mean, she said that I think at this point she had served eight years, which is, you know, the But you still escaped, babe. (laughs) She has served the top You have a 110 year sentence and you served eight. Well, in her justification for herself, she said that if I think that the maximum sentence for some sort of accessory role is like eight years. So she's like, in my mind, I had served the time for the crime that I had committed. But I don't think you could do that, babe. I don't think you get to decide. I've decided I've served enough of my sentence. Bye. We also don't know that she's telling the truth. We also do not know that she's telling the truth. Where's my crystal ball? (laughs) (laughs) So they're having a great time, but Sarah began to get bored of staying in hotels without Tom when he was home with his wife. And she also wanted to start trying to save money and figure out, you know, the rest of this life that she was trying to build for herself. Of course, getting a job to make her own money was rather difficult given that she was an escaped fugitive from the law. Uh, But Tom hooked her up with a buddy of his who was not only willing to pay her under the table, but also let her stay in a company condo. The friend believed that she was Ashley Thompson, the abused ex. When the two got together over the weekend, they drank and they partied. They even one time like brought home another woman. Like they were having a good time. Clearly Tom was having a good time. And he truly fell for Sarah. He even bought her a wedding style band because he didn't want the other guys at her work to think that she was single. She's married. You're married, sir. And your girlfriend's a double murderer. can't. I just imagine the wife finding out about this. And you know how like anytime you're cheated on, you're like, why? What does she have that I don't? And you're like looking at her to try to figure it out. And you're like stalking her on Instagram. Is it because I didn't murder two people? (laughs) Is it because I didn't escape from jail that you can't love me anymore? I know this poor woman. I mean, I would give up on relationships if that happened to me. (laughs) I think so. I'd be done. I'd throw in the towel. (laughs) The work relationship soon went sour, however. Sarah's anxiety spiked when she wasn't around Tom, and especially if he became unreachable. When this happened around Labor Day weekend, he was obviously with his wife, and he didn't answer her phone calls for like two days in a row. And so she started freaking out, and she actually called her boss at home trying to track down Tom, and the boss's wife answered. And... The boss's wife knew nothing about this young woman. She was 29 at the time. He had hired behind her back. Also found out that she was living in the company condo where I guess the boss sometimes stayed. So it was like a two bedroom. And so when he was on site, he would stay in that condo as well, which is why he had it. So 
in her eyes, this was some young toddy that he's hooking up with, you know? Of course. I would do the same thing. Yeah. So she was like, get that bitch out of your company and out of your company condo and maybe I'll believe it's your friend, you know? So yeah, unsurprisingly, Sarah was terminated. The couple got into a big fight at this point, Sarah and Tom. And Sarah ended up jumping on a bus to Toledo saying that she was like leaving Tom and starting a new life. But he ended up like chasing her down to Toledo, picking her up. Oh my God. Yeah, they quickly reconciled. And Tom got her another job in Chicago telling an acquaintance that she was his niece who was hiding from an abusive marriage. Okay. The company was kind enough to lease an apartment for her as part of her compensation. Meanwhile, the hunt for Sarah Pender was only heating up. Not only were the U.S. Marshals coming after her, America's Most Wanted decided to feature Sarah on the show. Hotcakes. Sarah's episode aired on September 13th, 2008, with John Walsh intoning, our first story tonight is about an artist. And he, he like did the quotation finger marks. Some artists can take a block of clay and mold it and manipulate it into anything they can think of. But the artist on our first story is a con artist. She manipulates people instead of clay. And even when she was sent off to prison, she never stopped working her craft. Everyone around her was putty in her hands. Wow. (laughs) That's a good intro. Snaps always for John Walsh. Snaps always. Rick Hall was featured on the segment and once again contradicted himself by saying that he was absolutely the trigger man at the murders, though he did say that Sarah had been present and encouraged him. Hull would later say that he hoped that lying about the crime would compel Sarah to come forward. And he said this was because he was really concerned about her and he was afraid that there would be some sort of suicide by cop situation if she was finally caught, you know? He said later, I said that stuff about me doing it on purpose. It was an enticement for her to come out of the woodwork. At that point, I had no hope for any relief in my sentence. But people who had been in my corner and believed in me saw that. It wasn't true. And I looked like a complete jackass in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, dude. You're like, there's a scene in the office. It's like the dinner party scene. It's like this this episode that's so cringy. And Michael is arguing with Jan about his vasectomy. <laughs> and he's like, I can't take it anymore. First, you tell me to get a vasectomy and then you tell me to reverse it. And then you tell me to get a vasectomy again and then you reverse it. Snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap. I can't take it anymore. I feel like the snip, snap, snip, snap, snip, snap is exactly what I think about this guy going back and forth one million times about what actually happened that night. I have one word for you. What? Drugs. (laughs) Yeah, but he's not on drugs anymore. I know, but it still fries your brain, babes. I don't know. I mean... I'm playing devil's advocate here, but Sarah's story always remained consistent. Maybe she didn't do as many drugs. I don't think she did. She was like only 20. I don't think she had as much time to fry her brain. Yeah. And she was still like doing a good job at work, working 40 to 50 hours a week, you know? That's not easy to do. No. Sarah was featured again on America's Most Wanted on November 15th when they interviewed Jamie Long from prison. Jamie told the host that Sarah was a very beautiful girl with a great personality. When asked what their relationship was, Jamie defiantly told him that she was her wife. On camera, Jamie was asked if she believed that Sarah manipulated Scott Spitler, and Jamie laughed and said, she's a woman. Absolutely. Pussy makes the world go round. 
Though the word pussy was beeped out for the broadcast. (laughs) How dare someone say pussy? How dare they? That's why we have an explicit warning on our podcast. (laughs) Which I have to say, I don't really know how you do totally clean true crime. You're talking about killing people. I know, but bravo. Yeah. I mean, really, hats off to you guys with the clean true crime podcast. As the media attention mounted, Tom Welch began to get a little concerned about what would happen to him if Sarah was discovered, but not enough to turn his mistress in. Instead, he began to make plans to get her a condo closer to his home and a position within his trucking business. He had allowed Sarah to look over his books, and she had already pointed out where the company was leaking unnecessary funds. Tom planned to foot the bill on cosmetic procedures for Sarah as well, ones that would both improve and alter her appearance. Sarah had already received lip fillers and had been to a consultation for a nose job and permanent eyeliner. Whoa. So she is both getting a disguise and a glow up over here. Crossing them off the list. Yeah. They were planning a cozy little life together. In fact, there would later be speculation that there was a plan to kill Tom's wife. Of course. As referenced by Sarah saying to her father in a letter that she had actually told Tom that it was a bad idea to kill his wife and that he should just divorce her. But Tom said that it was merely the type of pillow talk you have when you are sleeping with a convicted killer. Oh my God, these (laughs) I think that's when you rethink your relationship, sir. Well, Sarah must have been bringing in dang good ratings because America's Most Wanted featured her again on their year-end roundup of the 15 most dangerous fugitives at large, with Sarah making the countdown at number five. That's pretty good. Yeah. Do you think she watched them? She did. Yeah. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. The show aired on December 20th, 2008, and this time, someone was paying attention. An anonymous caller who only identified themselves as one of Sarah's neighbors gave the Chicago PD her alias, Ashley Thompson, and her address. Interestingly enough, the anonymous caller never claimed the $25,000 reward money that was owed to them, leading some to believe that the tipster was actually Sarah's boss or even potentially a coworker who had been doing a nice thing by helping what they believed was an abused woman out and found out then that she was a fugitive from the law. Of course, yeah. The cops buzzed up and told her that they were maintenance. When she opened the door, she appeared sleepy like she was going to bed. So they did say on the ID show, Stranger in My Home, that she was actually smoking a joint when they arrived because it's like, I think, 1030 at night this at this point. Oh, my God. When she couldn't provide the officers with ID and they pressed the issue, she finally said, okay, you guys finally got me. And these were a couple undercover cops that were sent to check out this tip, which they did not think was going to come to fruition. They didn't even really know who Sarah was. Like there had been a previous bust where they thought they knew where Sarah was based on some internet activity. Like somebody had like logged on as her and done some stuff where they had like sent this like crazy SWAT team out. Like it was like 20 guys. They all had these guns. They're wearing like bulletproof vests. Meanwhile, these are like two undercover cops like just going out to check out a tip. And she's like, you got me, guys. Yeah, they would later say that they didn't even have their guns drawn when they apprehended 
apparently the number five most dangerous fugitive on the loose. So Sarah was taken into custody and U.S. Marshal Harmon was notified, driving hours from his family's Christmas vacation to be able to finally bring his quarry to justice. He first laid eyes on Sarah in a Cook County jail. And after he introduced himself, because he had been on the America's Most Wanted episode, Sarah said, glad to meet you. Wow, you're even better looking in person than you are on TV. Stop. He's like, it's not going to work, Sarah. And apparently she just kind of smiled and was like, wow, you're cold. (laughs) She was working it, man. You got to give her that. All the way to the end. Yep. So she didn't immediately rat Tom Welch out, but eventually over the next couple of days, she did reveal how she was surviving and making a living and his involvement was included. She was very proud of the fact that despite what was going on, she managed to get a job and she was paying her own bills. Of course, yeah. You know, so she did eventually reveal how this all happened, which of course led back to Tom. Yeah, and they would want to know all that information anyway. Yeah, and I was very surprised by this next bit. Unlike Scott and Jamie, who had also aided in Sarah's escape and got, you know, seven to eight years for their trouble, Tom didn't end up doing any time. Now, at first I chalked this up to the fact that he's wealthy. So obviously he can pay for really good attorneys. Yep. But I also talked to everybody's favorite defense attorney. Bob Mata. Bob Mata from the Defense Diaries. And apparently there is a legal distinction between aiding an escape from prison and aiding a fugitive. Okay. And even more so because she introduced herself as somebody else. Yeah. So Bob said it would be very hard to prove that he didn't think she was actually Ashley Thompson. I mean, that makes sense to me in a weird way. Yeah. He also said that, you know, the state is loath to go after low-hanging fruit that they can't easily prove, especially when he might just get a suspended sentence anyway. Yeah. It's like not worth their time and resources. Exactly. 100%. And you guys, if you have not listened to Defense Diaries... Andy and I cannot recommend it strenuously enough. We love Bob. The show's amazing. It's a deep dive into the serial killer, John Wayne Gacy. And not only is Bob himself a defense attorney, his father was John Wayne Gacy's attorney. And the podcast features hours of never-before-heard recordings of Gacy himself and some truly mind-blowing revelations. Truly creepy. So creepy. So guys, definitely check that out. We also um, did a great bonus episode with him a while back. So check that out as well. So Marshall Harmon interviewed Tom after the fact, and he did seem contrite by that point. His wife had obviously discovered everything and was totally aghast that he had put them in a position to be potentially murdered. Like this isn't just getting his dick wet. This is getting his dick wet with a convicted killer. Tom said that it was a huge wake-up call and that he would no longer lie to or cheat on his wife. Bravo. You're a good man. As far as the appeal of Sarah and building their double life together, Tom said, you know, I can't explain it other than the sex was, well, she knew it was my Achilles heel. Not just knew it, but knew it and used it. I don't know if when in prison she learned psychology, hypnosis, something. I don't know. Because she trances you. She does. Yeah. I mean. Oh, man. Men. Men are gullible little weaklings. Mm -hmm. Yeah. They really are. Yeah. Power that P. Just like Jamie said. Uh Uh-huh. Harmon also went back and interviewed Rick Hull again. Now, Harmon 
really liked Rick Hall. They kind of like looked a little similar. Like both were like big guys who played football in high school. And Harmon really did think that Hall's account of what happened was maybe truthful. He had gotten his hands on his records. He saw that he had passed the polygraph in 2002. So he ended up like bringing him a meatball sub and being like, okay, what's the real deal, Mr. Meatball Sub? And Rick reiterated what he had said at the polygraph. He said that he did not kill Trisha and Drew. In fact, Drew had also wanted to have the gun in their home for protection and had given money to Sarah for the purchase. So he said the whole house knew about the whole team. Yeah. Yep. He admitted that he and Drew fought about something inconsequential, which he added up to the crystal meth that Drew had been taking for weeks. He said that Drew hadn't been sleeping well, so he was clearly on edge. Rick said that he left, he left the house. So Rick is now saying that he left the house to drive to the liquor store where he bought a case of Budweiser and a fifth of old granddad. And when he came back, he said that Sarah was on the couch cradling the gun and crying, saying, I didn't mean to do it. I didn't mean to do it. Okay. Is this the first time he says this story? This is what he said way back when on the polygraph that he passed. And now he's reiterating it for the U.S. Marshal. Okay. To Harmon, he alleged that he also had an illegal Glock that he would have used. He's like, I would have used this other gun if I had intended to kill anyone. On top of that, he said that any new shotgun comes with a plastic cap inside the barrel that blocks any dust or dirt from getting into it. And this cap was actually found inside Andrew Cataldi. Rick said that he knows about guns and he would have removed the cap before shooting, but Sarah did not. So he said that this was evidence that Sarah had made the shots. Yep. As far as motive, Rick said that he had been working late nights as a bouncer and that Drew had found out that she was seeing another man while he was working all these late nights. Got it. Okay. So while he leaves, the two got into a fight about something dumb and Drew was like, you know what, bitch? I'm going to expose you because I know you're cheating on my boy. She said at that point, it escalated. She was scared of Drew getting violent. She shot him and then panicked and shot Trisha. Okay. So that is the case for Sarah being the killer. I don't know about the whole cap thing just because they're all in a bunch of drugs. And I think you could forget about the cap thing, even if you do know about guns, you know? Yeah. And now it's been like X amount of time and he's like thinking about that. And he's like, exactly. That'd be a good story. (laughs) The only compelling piece of evidence for me was that he passed three polygraphs. I know. This story. I know. Mm -hmm. I know. But Sarah later told the US Marshal that Rick had told her that he had passed by putting a thumbtack in his shoe. And when they asked the base questions, like, what's your name? What's your date of birth? He would press his foot down on the thumbtack to raise his heart rate. So when they asked him the questions that he was lying for, his heart rate stayed the same. It stayed distressed, but consistent. Yeah. So Sarah claimed that he told her this in some conversation, and that's why he passed the polygraph. I I mean, it's hard. I don't trust either of these people. I don't either. So let's go through why Sarah maybe didn't do it. The two pieces of evidence that compelled jury members to return the guilty verdict were the letter that was sent to Rick and Floyd Pennington's testimony. First off with the letter, we already know that Rick said it was a forgery. Rick's fingerprints and Steve Logan's fingerprints were on the letter, but Sarah's were not. Furthermore, they could never produce an envelope that the letter allegedly came in. 
the vast majority of the letters that Sarah sent Rick were in cursive, and this one was printed. Okay. Steve Logan would not admit to the forgery because he didn't want to incriminate himself, but he did admit that Rick had asked him several times to do it and had come up with this idea. Okay. Lastly, the letter was addressed as May 16th, 2001. However, this letter was not among the letters seized in the July 2001 search that resulted in Sarah's deal being pulled. It was later produced by Rick's attorney. Many believe it was because the forged letter hadn't been written yet. If it was indeed written in May by Sarah, it should have been in the bundle of letters they found. Okay, so next is Floyd Pennington's testimony. During the research and writing portion of Steve Miller's book, Girl Wanted, which we're using today, Steve was allowed access to the investigative reports and evidence. In one of the evidence boxes, he found something that no one claimed to have ever seen before. It was a snitch list written out by Floyd Pennington in which he wrote down a list of names of people he knew and said he'd be willing to wear a wire, turn in evidence, or say whatever he needed to say to roll on these people and get a smaller sentence. It's crazy that he has a whole list of people that he could roll on. Basically, he was willing to say whatever about whomever in order to save his own hide. So former deputy prosecutor Larry Sells was actually with Steve Miller. They were going through evidence together in prepping for this book, and he was completely shocked. He had never seen this snitch list, and he knew for a fact that the defense had never seen this snitch list because they would have used it to get Floyd Pennington's testimony thrown out. He's clearly willing to say whatever for a shorter sentence. So this made... Prosecutor Larry Sells feel very differently about how that case had shook out. Furthermore, within weeks of his release, Floyd Pennington raped a woman and was sent back to prison. Oh, my God. So she was convicted mostly on a letter that was proven to be a forgery later. Yep. And the testimony of a guy who was shopping for a deal who was a rapist. Yeah, yeah. Furthermore, Sarah also made a very valid point when she said, I'm a planner. Look at the meticulous planning necessary for my escape. Yeah, but, you know, does it seem likely that she would plan, because this was premeditated murder that she went down for, she would plan to shoot people in her home where she can't get the blood off the carpet and then dump them in a dumpster only five blocks away. Okay. So she's like, does that really seem like me? No. So here's what I think. To me, it does not seem likely that Sarah was the actual shooter. I think that we've got two guys on meth and steroids and God knows what else. Somebody apparently hasn't been sleeping because they've been on meth. An argument broke out. A scuffle happened. And I think that Rick grabbed the gun and shot Drew. And then I think he panicked and shot Trisha because she witnessed the murder. And I do think potentially Sarah was there because this somebody wasn't there and it, it happened. I just don't believe it. Yeah. I also... The timing. The timing, it just, it seems too convenient. I also would have liked to see some video footage of either of them if they did leave. Like, it's 2000. It's year 2000. There are people that have security cameras. I mean, you'd think that the convenience store would maybe have a camera. 
So how come they couldn't find any evidence of her this hour-long period that she was supposedly walking around the neighborhood and going to the convenience store and buying the cigarettes, you know? So I do think that she was there. Potentially, you know, they're all on drugs. She might have, you know, egged him on or said, teach him a lesson, you know? My best gut feeling is that Rick was the shooter. What do you think? Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. Yeah. So Sarah was thrown back in prison in solitary confinement. And this is a brutal situation. I mean, it is a tiny nothing cell. I mean, your head is right next to a crusty old toilet. There's no sink, she said. She wasn't even allowed to flush her own toilet. She couldn't turn off her lights. She was not allowed to talk to any of the other inmates. She wasn't allowed to talk to the guards. She wasn't allowed to make calls or have visits. Yep. She said that the whole guard thing was also brutal because they basically had to like give her this cold, gross food through a slot and not speak to her. They would take her to the shower and handcuff her to the shower and not speak to her because especially, you know, the male guards were told that they could have zero conversation with her because everybody was like painting her to be this super manipulative, charming, you know, Charles Manson type, which is totally dehumanizing, but she escaped before. So I can understand the whole like play stupid games, win stupid prizes aspect of this punishment. Yep. If it went on for, you know, a handful of months or something. But Sarah was in solitary confinement for over five years. It's insane. Five years. No matter how you feel about Sarah Pender, that is inhumane. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, she went in in December after, you know, she was caught of 2008. And she wasn't released to Gen Pop until January 30th, 2014. Wow. And I totally understand the need for solitary confinement, especially when you have somebody that is going to hurt themselves or hurt others, especially others. But Sarah had never been violent. I mean, until the murders happened, she had no record. She had no record of assaulting anyone. She'd been maybe a little self, you know, destructive, but she'd never hurt anyone. She didn't hurt anyone in prison before, before she escaped. While she was out, she didn't hurt anyone. She wasn't like, you know, carjacking people during her escape, you know? So it seems a little aggressive to keep her in solitary confinement for that long. Yeah, for sure. I mean, more than a little. And some people said that it felt like a revenge from the Indiana Department of Corrections for making them look stupid, but also revealing that there was a lot of corruption in the system. Apparently, there were lawsuits from other inmates that said that guards were sexually harassing them or even raping them. Wow. More than just Scott. Yeah. So Sarah has amassed a ton of support from people who believe that she was wrongfully convicted. One person who is now advocating for Sarah is the prosecutor who put her behind bars, Larry Sells. Huh. Larry spoke on the show Strangers in My Home and said that out of 70-something cases he has convicted, this is the only one that he feels he may have put away an innocent person. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, he even called her mother on Mother's Day or I think like the night before Mother's Day and told her that. And he also told her that he was going to do everything he could to help Sarah get another trial. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, he said it was really the snitch list that changed his mind. And that like really threw him for a loop, not knowing that 
he thinks like taken together, number one, he would have never put Floyd on the stand. But number two, he might have reconsidered the forgery evidence, you know? Got it. Okay. Since then, Sarah's attorneys have filed appeals for a new trial, as well as to have her sentence reduced to the maximum prison sentence awarded for assisting a criminal. Both were rejected. I personally feel like she deserves a new trial. I mean, if they find her guilty, then she's guilty. Like, why not run this one again now that there's new information, you know? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know either. Yeah. I mean, both major pieces of evidence against her appeared to have been fabricated. And even the prosecutor who put her away thinks that she deserves a new trial. The loved ones of Andrew Cataldi and Trisha Nordman disagree. Regardless of whether Sarah actually pulled the trigger or not, she bought the gun, she helped to dispose of the bodies, and she attempted to cover up the murders and then ran away from prison as if that was what she was entitled to. Yeah. For the families and friends left behind, mm, that's enough to deserve to be in prison. And for many others out there, it is as well. And that's why this is such a controversial case. Yep. I mean, what do you think? Uh, I mean, it seems like they were both guilty parties. I don't think that she deserves to be thrown in solitary confinement, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with them maybe scheduling a date in the future to retrial or to at least examine information to have like a fair trial. But I don't know. I have to like believe that everyone did their jobs in this case and looked at all the evidence and... It seems like both of them were really messy with a lot of things. And both of them are, you know, Rick's flip-flopping his story. She wrote all those letters. I don't know. It looks really, no pun intended, but fishy. It does. It does look very fishy. I agree with you. And I think that's why this is such a difficult case to pin. I mean, we usually cover cases where it's just so clear, you know, and this one's a, a bit of a gray area now. Unsettling. It's unsettling. Sorry to end your year on an unsettling big question mark so case. rude. <laughs> I just want you guys to go forward with your new resolutions with no resolution on this case. We do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Andrea, would you like to sing for us? No, I was just going to say hit me. Wikipedia fun <laughs> fact. But you're such a better singer. Do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. Wikipedia fun fact. Thank you. The Wikipedia fun fact is... Less a fun fact and just some information for y'all. Wikipedia is, information. <laughs> Wikipedia information. There is indeed a Lifetime movie about this case called She Made Them Do It, starring Jenna Dewan, who looks nothing like Sarah Pender, oh even remotely. Always, though, with Lifetime. They do. I don't know who their casting agent is, but. Yes, absolutely. It is kind of hilarious, though, if you guys want to check it out. They went with that Sarah wasn't there, but they also made her like whole sex stuff with Scott Spitler seem like it was like this sexual crazy affair that she like seduced him and stuff like that. And that was not the case, but it's entertaining. It's, it's you know, it's lifetime soap opera goodness. Love. I only watch shows with you. Yeah. <laughs> we only watch bad television when we're together. We don't have time otherwise. No. In conclusion, ugh, man, it took me a while to learn this one, guys, but you got to stay away from those bad boys. Yeah. Speaking of, if someone whips out a bag of ecstasy the first time you met them, maybe it's a fun night, but definitely not someone you want to move in with the next week. Yeah. I don't know if that's boyfriend material. No, 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 Boy no, toy. no, no. <laughs> And as always... 
Trust your gut when it comes to love. So in the new year, no one ends up finding out that their husband of 20 years is having an affair with a convicted double murderer. Yeah. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. 2022 is going to be so great. It's going to be so wild. I have so many great cases planned for you guys. And thank you so much for making our 2021 most excellent. Love you. Love you. Bye. 